We know that defective genes cause disease. How do we determine which gene or genes cause what? You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. David A. Greenberg, Director, Division of Statistical Genetics, Professor, Department of Biostatistics at Mailman School of Public Health and New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York. Dr. Greenberg and I are discussing how computer simulations can help us find genes that influence diseases. Dr. Greenberg, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much, Bruce. What would be the power for all of us if we find the genes that influence disease? Knowing what causes a disease is the beginning of coming up with a cure. And genetic diseases, or genes that influence the expression of genetic disease, need to be known in order to be able to understand what causes the disease in the first place. So if you want to understand what insulin-dependent or type 1 diabetes is, then you have to know about insulin and how it gets turned on and off to be able to come up with a cure for the disease. How are we doing about finding these genes for diseases right now? Well, more and more potential disease genes are being discovered all the time. There's articles in the newspapers all the time about the genes for this particular disease or the genes that influence, for example, uh, susceptibility to, for example, AIDS or any number of other conditions. The question is, finding these genes currently, hints that these genes exist, don't yet tell us that the gene that we've discovered is, in fact, the gene we were looking for. This is one of the problems that will come down the line once the novelty of finding the genes wears off. One has to be able to show, having found a gene, that that is the gene that is influencing the disease. Because the way association analysis works, we find an association, but the association is possibly not in the gene that's actually causing the disease, but in one that's very close by. So it's going to take us a lot of work to first discover that we have the correct gene and then discover what the gene is doing. Because very often, genes are discovered that cause a disease, and we don't understand what possible role this gene plays in the disease expression. Now, you've been a big proponent of using computer simulations to help in genetic analysis. How does this work, and why is it so important? Computer simulation is an enormously powerful method to allow us to ask what-if questions. Because right now, we have only a rudimentary understanding of how the entire genome works. It wasn't too long ago that people assumed that, well, there are genes. And then it was discovered that there are not only genes, but there's a lot of what was called junk DNA, that the genes are separated into different sections that are then put together and joined to produce a protein. And this junk DNA was mysterious and nobody understood what it was for. And when people went looking for disease genes, they went looking for mistakes in the gene that were in the part of the gene that became the protein. And they weren't looking at the junk DNA. We're beginning to understand now that this so-called junk DNA exercises a critical role in gene expression, controlling how the gene is expressed, where it is expressed, in which tissue it's expressed, and turning the gene on and off when necessary. So right now, our understanding is rudimentary of how the genome works. Computer simulation allows us 
to ask what-if questions about gene expression and about how genes are passed in populations, which is particularly the thing that I'm interested in. So, for example, I used computer simulation to demonstrate what the effect of different modes of inheritance was on linkage analysis and how we can overcome the problems of what happens when we make a mistake in our assumptions when we make an analysis. Because whenever you do an analysis, you have to make assumptions. And the question is, what if your assumption is wrong? Is it going to have a major effect in your findings, or is it going to have a minor effect? If it's going to have a minor effect, then we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to collect data on that particular aspect. If it's going to have a major effect, then by God, you better be sure that you have the right numbers involved. So give us an example of this linkage analysis computer simulation that you did and what you found. So, for example... Back in the early 1990s, people assumed that if you didn't have the correct mode of inheritance, that is, the mechanism by which the uh, disease or the trait is passed from one generation to the other, then you couldn't possibly do linkage analysis correctly. Now, when I say mechanism, I mean dominant or recessive is the simplest way to describe it. That is, do you need one gene to have the trait or disease, or do you need two copies of a particular gene to have the trait or disease? So the way of finding out the mechanism for the trait or disease originally was to use what is called segregation analysis, an approach that is now largely unused, whereby you collected data and you observed how the trait was passed in families, knowing, talking nothing about genes, just how the trait is passed from one generation to the next. If you see it in the parents and you see it in the children, you see it in the grandchildren, you see it in the great-grandchildren, it's probably dominantly inherited. That is, you need one copy of the gene. If you only see it in the offspring, then, for example, it can be recessively inherited. That is, you need two copies of the gene. You understand this is a terrific simplification. When you do linkage analysis, you have to know that information, or it was considered that you had to have that information before you could do your linkage analysis. By using computer simulation, I was able to show that you don't have to know that information. You can try out different modes of inheritance with the data you've collected and show that that can not only tell you where the disease gene is, but can also tell you what the proper mode of inheritance is or an approximation of that mode of inheritance for that particular gene. So it simplified linkage analysis enormously to be able to do that, and it gave you extra information about the disease that you didn't have ahead of time. And I was able to do that through computer simulation because there was no other mechanism to show that. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. David A. Greenberg of Mailman School of Public Health and New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, on how we find genes that influence disease using computer simulation. So take us through one of these simulations. What are you simulating? Are you using a, an actual patient population or... What's going on? No, we make up the patient population. We put in parameters, that is, we put in things that we think are true in the real population, like the percentage of people who have a given disease gene. You know, it might be one per 10,000, or it might be one per 100. And then we put in how we think the disease is being inherited, whether it requires two copies of the disease gene or one copy of the disease gene, or it requires a number of genes in order to have the disease. That, for example, might be called an epistatic model, meaning you have multiple genes that have to interact in order to have the disease, which, by the way, is probably a good description of the more common diseases, 
When you have common diseases, you need very high gene frequencies if anybody is ever going to have the disease because multiple genes are required in an epistatic model. So then you put in the model and you put in the assumptions. And then what I do is we generate populations with the disease and perhaps control populations also depending on what we're doing. And then we analyze those data and we see how the analysis reflects what is actually what we know to be the case. It's sort of like you get to play God on the one hand and invent a population, and then you get to play the poor dumb investigator who hasn't a clue what's going on and analyze the data that you're given. And then you see if the assumptions that the dumb investigator makes match the reality when you go back to assuming your God role. And this allows us to test our methods, the analysis methods, before we actually use them on a real population, on real genetic data, We'll know the characteristics of the methods so that we can say how good our results are. And how often do the things that you predict actually turn out when you look at an actual living population? That question is sort of at 90 degrees to what we're doing. What I have found in the studies that I've looked at is that after you do your simulations, it gives you a very good idea of the range of things you can expect the main advantage I have found doing the simulations is an expansion of our understanding or expansion of the feel for what parameters are important and what you're likely to see under different characteristics of the disease. Chance favors the prepared mind. And one of the things that the simulations do is it allows you to run these what-if experiments, preparing your mind for the various things that may happen that you may see when you analyze real data. So, for example, in the course of my computer simulations, I for fun, for lack of any better word, or just to see what would happen. I simulated some families with imprinting. Imprinting means that whether you have the disease or trait or not depends on which parent the gene comes from. So a gene that's inherited from the mother may not cause the disease, but the same gene when inherited from the father may manifest the disease. That's called genomic imprinting. When I did this and saw what the results were, Later on, many years later, when I actually was looking at a disease and saw what the characteristics were, I was able to say, I wonder if this is imprinting, and then went back and analyzed the data and could support that by actually analyzing the family data. So one of the big advantages of simulation is being able to expand the range of things you can expect to see. Does the kind of simulation ever mislead researchers or expand their options so much that they're not really sure what they're looking at? No, I think I would have to answer that question, no. Simulation almost always expands your horizons about what's possible. And one of the biggest problems in science in general, not to speak of genetics, is imagining things that we can't imagine, trying to come up with things that we don't see right now. So back when nobody believed junk DNA meant anything, people tend to dismiss it. If you can think that maybe this isn't junk, maybe this is important, then you can start to question of whether your previous assumptions are right or not. So Einstein, for example, threw over the incorporated notion that the speed of light might be a constant, something that he pulled out of thin air, apparently, and yet it seemed to solve all the problems that had been being experienced by physics in the 19th century. So I think being able to imagine more through the use of simulation and testing our ideas as they come up, it's tremendous power, and I think it's an enormous help to me, and I know it's been a help to all of my colleagues, use it. So you teach this computer simulation for genetic analysis to PhDs and postdocs. What have these researchers uncovered after using these techniques? I'm afraid it's too early to say that. 
I do know that several theoretical findings having to do with rather arcane field of uh, likelihood analysis, for that it's been enormously helpful. Likelihood analysis is a mathematical technique that allows us to try and understand statistical results in a way that is much more meaningful for genetics than simply um, the usual statistical approaches. We've sequenced the healthy human genome and are now sequencing the human HapMap genome of common diseases. What are the tools that allow us to map this new frontier? And what will this mapping mean to preventing, treating, and curing disease? I want to thank my guest, Dr. David Greenberg, for guiding us through this journey of gene discovery. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.